A quick note about this episode. It is a double dose of Curtis Yarvin, who was kind enough to stop by the studios here not once but twice while he was here in the Keys. And if you don't know who Curtis is, hang on, and I will give him a proper introduction in just a bit. But do note that I have combined both of those recording sessions here into one double long podcast. You'll hear a brief pause at the end of our first session of recording, and then I've queued up the other one right after that. Greetings and welcome to the Matt Asher Radio Show coming at you from Bore Bay Studios where the waters are shallow and the conversations are deep. Each week on the show we explore the unknown knowns, the fringes of science and culture, the borderlands between truth and possibility. If you happen to be in South Florida, you might be listening to the show live at 6 p.m. on Saturdays on Keys Talk 96.9 or 1025 FM. If so, please note that every episode is also uploaded afterwards to mattasher.com and available on our podcast feed. Do a search for The Filter on your favorite podcast app. My guest today is Curtis Yarvin. Curtis is, I think it is fair to say, one of the most well-known, maybe even infamous public intellectuals who you may or may not have heard of. Curtis, welcome to the show. Thank you, Matt. It's a pleasure to be here. I think instead of giving you an introduction, maybe it's best if you just introduce yourself and give a little bit of your background. Well, I'm Curtis Yarvin. Uh, I used to blog under the name Mencius Moldbug. Um, I guess I, you know, I usually introduce myself as the uh, most prominent American monarchist blogger. Um, I'm, you know, like many people out there, I'm actually a recovering libertarian. Uh, I don't. Uh, my bite is uh, is not as bad as my bark, and my bark isn't bad at all. And you can find my blog at graymirror.substack.com. That's Gray Mirror with, with an A, the American way. And that is one of the most trafficked, uh, subscribed to Substacks out there. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, I think I, 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 I haven't checked whether I'm still on the... Uh, on the Substack Politics leaderboard, but you know, I was somewhere at the bottom of that last time I checked. But uh, again, it's certainly the most prominent American monarchist blog. Uh, and by monarchist, of course, I mean I mean absolute monarchist. I'm not a not a big believer in costume monarchies. Let's let's go right into that because people hear that word and they certainly have associations. They have I have many, associations. They have, ma- they have many associations. Um, I think most people associate monarchy, which just simply means the rule of one, um, with um, these sorts of dress-up kings and queens that we have nowadays. Uh, ironically, of course, you know, if you read Aristotle or, or any real authority on political science, will tell you that there are three forms of government. Monarchy is the rule of one. Oligarchy is the rule of many, uh, of the rule of a few. And democracy is the rule of many. And amusingly, the best way to describe the form of government we have today would probably be oligarchy, um, referring specifically to... Um, what uh, some people call the uh, the deep state. I think the more technical term is the administrative state, which is um, sort of a bureaucratic form of government, which is largely immune to politics. And so one of the interesting ways to understand simply the difference between oligarchy and democracy is that you might have heard the word politics. 
And you might note that the word politics has negative connotations in the English language today. If we were to talk about, say, politicizing foreign policy or politicizing COVID or something, that would be a negative description. Whereas if we were to talk about you know, democratizing foreign policy, that would be a positive description. And that's sort of interesting because politics and democracy are supposed to be synonyms and democracy is supposedly the control of the government by politicians. In fact, people have a negative response to the word politician, which sort of tells you that you have a negative you know, response to what is actually meant by the word democracy. So if you're looking for a sort of literal meaning of democracy today, you would come up with the word populism, which again has intentionally negative connotations. Intentionally negative because? Because um, it's a counter-oligarchic force. And so if you basically think of oligarchy as sort of the rule of experts, this whole 20th century idea of the sciences of government, sociology, economics, and so forth, you're basically thinking that the fundamental decisions in governing should be made by certain classes of experts who know what they're doing. This is oligarchy by any definition of the word. Um, the idea that politicians should actually be in control of the government for example, that the president, who is the so-called chief executive, should be actually have the powers of the CEO over the federal government uh, is an extremely radical idea in, and very, very distant from current practice. And so, you know, when you sort of think about there's an interesting comparison between monarchy and democracy, which is that Monarchy, as we all know, has sort of turned into this kind of symbolic thing like, you know, the UK in many countries still have a, a quote monarchy. But if you compare the role of, say, Elizabeth I to the role of Elizabeth II in the government of the UK, you can see that there's a very, very large difference between those things. Likewise, if you compare the authority of a Trump or a Biden over Washington, D.C. to the authority of someone like FDR or Abraham Lincoln, you can see this very similar enormous difference. Uh, you know, this is in some ways going farther in Europe where you have, for example, the EU, which does most of the actual legislating for European countries and which is very carefully set up so that the European Commission which generates most of these regulations is completely insulated from the voters. And so when you basically have these systems where you're like, we believe in democracy or liberal democracy, and what liberal democracy turns out to mean is that politicians have no power over the government and the real decisions are made by unelected experts and people in the administrative state who can't be fired, who can't be reorganized, who, uh, you know, if you go to, to D.C., for example, um, you know, if you know anyone in D.C., anyone involved on, say, the Hill, you know, one fun thing to say to them, and they will oh, pretty much always agree with this, is that we don't have an executive branch, we have a legislative branch. Because, in fact, the so-called executive branch is managed at a very, very deep level of detail in terms of its organization um, and its funding by congressional legislation. 
And, you know, the Congress, of course, was originally set up to be this, um, you know, like the House of Representatives, you know, in the 18th century was supposed to be the sort of the voice of, of populism, really, in the government of like, you know, uncontrolled democracy, and the Senate was supposed to be a little more oligarchic. Uh, in fact, what these eight institutions have turned into is, of course, if you look at the House, there's something like a 98% incumbency rate. If you look at the Senate, it's more like 95%. And then there's a sort of seniority system to make sure if you actually do replace one of these dinosaurs, the replacement basically has no power. And so you're looking at a system which sort of the Congress basically acts as a kind of buffer against, you know, that protects Washington, D.C. from actual politics. And so for anyone inside the administrative state, you basically, and I just happen to know this because both of my parents worked in the administrative state, you barely notice what we call sort of changes of power. And so Americans are sort of out there voting in these elections where they really think of you know, they'll constantly, they'll say Trump is in power, Biden is in power. And actually the power of these politicians over the unelected administrative state is very, very weak. Mm -hmm. Cer certainly this was an interesting dynamic that played out with Trump as as a an outsider of sorts. It seemed like that administrative state, they all mobilized against him as aggressively as possible to try to remove him from power and certainly diminish any power he might have. Right. And and the thing is that even very small, you know, the president, you know, the, the I mean, the White House isn't even fully under control of the president, right? The White House is, even the White House itself is basically micromanaged by congressional legislation. And so the president can't even reorganize the White House, much less the entire executive branch. And so can the can a president like Trump sort of disrupt can he drain the swamp? He can't drain the swamp. Can he can he disrupt sort of the, you know, the the uh, can he screw things up? Yeah, he can screw things up to a certain extent. But if you talk to anyone in the administrative state and you basically say, you know, how would this system work without the White House? The answer is usually well, it would probably in general work better without the White House. And so when you basically say, to take the monarchy example again, if you basically look at the UK today and you say, well, how would the UK's government work without Elizabeth II? The answer is it wouldn't change at all. In fact, it would work fine without Parliament even. Um, but if you look at, for example, Elizabethan England and you say, how would Elizabethan England work without Elizabeth I? Then you notice a real difference. And that's because Elizabeth I was a real monarch. So why do I believe in monarchy? You know, there's a very simple answer to that question, which is that everything functional in our society is operated as a monarchy. If you drive a car, that car was built by a monarchy because it was built by a corporation with a CEO. If you eat at a restaurant, same thing. Your restaurant is a monarchy, has a head chef. Um, now, that CEO and that chef may be accountable in certain ways, the CEO is accountable to a board, um, you know, the restaurant is accountable to whoever, whoever owns the restaurant, but it's still a monarchy because that accountability doesn't turn into micromanagement. So the board is not basically micromanaging the CEO. 
the board just wants the CEO to produce effective results. The, the CEO is also generally not micromanaging in any system of any size. Yeah, I mean, it sort of depends, you know, it depends on micromanaging is a complicated word. I mean, it depends. There are definitely institutions that kind of run themselves to some extent. You know, the CEO of IBM is a sort of very loose leader. The CEO of SpaceX is actually quite capable of managing sort of in detail. And the closer you get to sort of the more vital and effective areas of capitalism and the ones that are sort of less on cruise control, you see more of this sort of monarchical authority. So in the startup world, in the Silicon Valley world, that's very, very monarchical. And then if you have sort of an old company that's kind of on cruise control, um, there's not much for the CEO to do besides relatively minor course corrections and kind of maintenance. In the, in the um, startup world, you sometimes speak of like peacetime and wartime CEOs. So Elon Musk, for example, you know, runs his companies like he's at war all the time. Um, you know, a lot of CEOs will work seven hour days and play a lot of golf. Uh, you know, that's not really the Elon Musk, you know, MO as I understand it. Um, and so, you know, what we're looking at when we look at these political systems, these sovereign systems, is a sovereign system which is, has no authority over it. It's certainly somewhat something different from like a car company which does have a government above it to tell it what to do or not what not to do. Of course, if you have basically, you know, all of the products, including the whatever you're listening to this on, were probably made in China, which means that they were made by a monarchy within a monarchy, because China, of course, is a monarchy. And so you're basically to essentially sort of tout the superiority of oligarchy over monarchy. Um, first of all, it's necessary for you to have this kind of transformation in your head where you're actually living in, living in an oligarchy which is pretending very, very hard to be a democracy, which means it's pretending very, very hard to persuade these individuals out there casting their votes in the election that they're in control of it instead of the other way around. Giving the appearance giving of the input appearance. to people. Giving the appearance of input to people in precisely the same way as you know, true monarchy began to fade um, in you know a couple of hundred years ago, um, or well, more like four hundred years ago, into basically the sort of um, kind of fake you know costume monarchy, which started, of course, in the UK in sixteen eighty eight, and um, we can see that sort of this is a typical way in which political systems evolve throughout time that where functional institutions become ceremonial institutions. And so, you know, across the last few centuries, there was this trend of functional monarchy turning into ceremonial monarchy. And what we have now has basically been a sort of functional democracy turning into ceremonial democracy. And it's sort of easy to say that, okay, forget this scary, crazy monarchy idea, why don't we turn our ceremonial democracy back into a functional democracy, and why don't we go sort of full populism? I would say the problem there is that democracy as a system is essentially designed for a very homogenous and very virtuous population. Uh, if you don't have a homogenous population, then democracy turns into basically 
race war, class war, culture war, or whatever you, you have. You have a group, identitarian groups, who are each voting their interests into the disadvantage of some other group or attempting so to express. Have, I mean, and and of course the you know the. Uh, I mean, the founders, uh, you know, who were who were very cool people uh, in the Federalist Papers, are constantly warning against the danger of party and democracy and faction. In fact, you can really think of sort of the first, uh, well, really the second American Republic, because you have to count the Articles of Confederation, which was not a success. But you can think of the early Constitution as essentially a kind of reactionary, quasi-monarchical coup against the Articles of Confederation system, which worked so poorly that it's almost been airbrushed out of American history. And what that created was this very interesting monarchical structure, which had a somewhat ceremonial leader in George Washington, and something that looks like very much like a startup CEO in Alexander Hamilton. And Hamilton basically ran the government for something like 12 years. Uh, he was nominally the Secretary of the Treasury, but he f was basically running the whole thing. And again, that looks very much like a startup founder. So you're, I un understand the, the case that um, systems where there is a single person with ultimate control can be efficient. And let's assume that I agree with that. To go from there and say that I want my government to be more efficient... I'm I'm not at all convinced of that. Well, you know, the the I mean this is a sort of traditional American viewpoint that basically is like well, you should have this inefficient and ineffective system rather than an efficient effective one that might kind of tyrannize you in some way. And when I look at that, you know, as a libertarian, I used to sort of greatly believe in ineffective government and so forth. What you actually see with ineffective government is that it's sort of, there's a, there's a phase in the, um, uh, to use a very distant astronomical example, um, there's a sort of course of evolution of stars, which our own dear sun will go through, where it's kind of a small, right now it's sort of a small hot star. And what it's gonna turn into in a few hundred million years is a red giant, which is a very large, cool star, which is very big and very inefficient. And so when you basically look at the federal government today, it has, it's in very much a red giant state. It's very large and very inefficient. And so when we think of, there's this American tradition of kind of limited government, which is an idea that ultimately doesn't really make a whole lot of sense because government power can't limit itself, right? And so you're basically, you're looking to sort of a piece of paper to limit it, which, you know, how's that working out for you? Um, and then when you basically get this sort of red giant state, what you get is a phenomenon um, that the great Sam Francis called anarcho-tyranny, which is that it tends to greatly enforce its rules against kind of civilized law-abiding people and then does not enforce anything at all against sort of chaos and literal anarchy. And so the sort of the, the it's, it's very hard to sort of break out of this American tradition of 
oh, you know, limited and small government. But in fact, if you like, if you even try to imagine the power that it would take just to turn this red giant state into anything else in any way, shape or form, you're basically looking at, at a problem that can only be solved by a coherent central authority. And so even to basically, even, even if you sort of imagine a much smaller government comparable to what you might have seen, say, in the 1840s or something, even to take what we have now and turn it into that requires an exercise of force. And by force, I don't mean violence, I mean force, um, which can only be imagined as coming from a coherent center. So we're going to have to take a break in a moment here. When we get back, and I am talking with Curtis Yarvin on Keys Talk FM, I want to get into that idea a little bit more of how actually we ended up in a place where we do have this oligarchical state, uh, this deep administrative state, so to speak, and what that looks like if we wanted to attempt to turn that around in some way. Welcome back to the Matt Asher Radio Show on Keys Talk FM. I am talking today with Curtis Yarvin, and we are talking about monarchy. That is, that thing with all the kings and queens ruling with absolute power. And before the break, we were talking a little bit about how we got to our current state of affairs here in the United States anyway, which is of an administrative state, a group of people who are permanent from one administration to another, and who do the actual work and make the rules for us. How did we end up here where we don't really have a democracy, but instead we have this permanent administrative class? Excellent question. So, you know, of course, democracy means, um, you know, the rule of the people, the rule of the masses. In fact, it means populism. It means politics. It means politicians are completely in control of the government, which is an idea that is absolutely terrifying to everyone in Washington. And you might even say that it's deservedly terrifying to everyone in Washington because the idea of democracy involves a population that is both homogenous and virtuous. And that is, and, and the idea of democracy is that this produces good government by basically concentrating that popular virtue um, in sort of a ruling force. And that idea arose among, if you sort of cast yourself back to the 18th century and you think of the, the virtues of the Puritans and the Cavaliers and so forth, these are very, very virtuous, very godly, in fact, people. You may know the famous John Adams quote where he's like, our constitution is designed only for moral and religious, you know, people, um, for, for any other people, uh, you know, it, power would go through it like a whale through a net. And power has indeed, to some extent, gone through it like a whale through a net. And when you look at sort of how we got here, one analogy I like to use is one thing they do in, in French history is they number the republics. 
And so they say when, when sort of the form of the state changes completely, it becomes a, like a different numbered republic. So the current French Republic is the, is the fifth republic, although I would argue that maybe it should be called the sixth. But in any case, when you look at American history, you basically see four periods in which the nature of the federal government changes. First, you have the very brief Articles of Confederation period, the, um, the, the Congress of the Confederation, which was uh, worked so badly that it has been more or less airbrushed out of American history. Like most people don't even know who the first president was because he was the president of the Congress. Uh, that was replaced by the constitutional system, which was done really... Um, which was a sort of break in legitimacy from the Congress of the Confederation that resulted in an essentially monarchical system in which had a kind of sort of dual headed structure with George Washington being a somewhat ceremonial monarchical figure and Alexander Hamilton, a young sort of very talented manager, uh, very reminiscent of kind of a Silicon Valley startup CEO running the initial federal government. That worked very, very well for quite a while. That worked for about 75 years. And then, of course, we had the Civil War. And in the Civil War, basically, we sort of shift from a government that is much smaller and that is still sort of federal in some ways to a national government. The head of that national government, again, has this interesting structure where the sort of the, the figurehead, the person who's making the speeches that you've heard of is Abraham Lincoln. And the people doing most of Abraham Lincoln's work are his principal private secretaries, John Hay, um, Hay and Nicolay, I forget Nicolay's first name. And again, you know, this, this pair of young energetic men looks very, very like a Silicon Valley kind of startup situation. And, and, and these people essentially create a different federal government that is operating under different rules. It's basically a national government. And what you see is, you know, again, that moment of transformation requires a concentration of authority into the hands of a very small number of people who can really remake the system. That system lasts until 1933. And in 1933, again, we see uh, a system that's become essentially oligarchical, you know, what we sometimes call the Gilded Age system of American government, which had become a kind of commercial oligarchy. Uh, you know, the late Gilded Age system is very similar to the way China is governed today. And as in China, it's very, very corrupt, and a lot of things get done very, very quickly, which is why we see all this kind of beautiful Gilded Age architecture from around the turn of the century. That system kind of broke down, as systems do, and it's replaced by the rule of FDR. And once again, FDR, although he doesn't call himself a king, none of these people use the word king, but what's important in politics is not the name of a thing, but the reality of a thing. And so if power is concentrated into one person, it doesn't matter whether he calls him he or she, you know, goes by generalissimo or president or whatever, that is a monarchy because monarchy means the rule of one. So FDR is really to quite a substantial extent in practical control of Washington, D.C. He's basically transformed this oligarchical system into what's essentially personal rule. 
and he really creates a new Washington. FDR could really, I mean, he could create and destroy agencies. He could do, the powers of FDR are, I don't know if it's two orders of magnitude or three orders of magnitude greater than the powers of any president today. And of course, FDR, like any monarch, rules for life. You know, he breaks all of these conventions, basically get four the, terms. The first one to yes. ignore the the kind of the longstanding tradition of not running for office. Exactly. A third time, he ignores that. He ignores that. And not only that, in 1940, basically, there's this interesting phenomenon where uh, most people don't know this, but Wendell Wilkie, FDR's opponent in that election, had been a Democrat, basically, <laughs> right up until he was mysteriously chosen as the Republican nominee. And so in some ways, that was kind of the end of real two-party politics in the U.S. If you were looking at any third world country and you basically saw that happen where, you know, the president for life essentially chooses his opponent. Uh, you're like, okay, well, I don't know what this is, but like politics is no longer in control of the country here. And and so the interesting thing that happens with FDR's administration is that FDR in 1944 does this very interesting thing where he selects this guy, Harry Truman, as his successor. And Harry Truman is a nobody. Harry Truman is a Democrat. He's a Democrat. He's a sort of Southern machine Democrat. Um, very few people have heard of him. He's not even really part of FDR's political faction. Um, he's kind of a nobody. And in 44, it's also very clear that FDR knew he was dying. He would die, you know, sort of very shortly after that. So the question is, he's dying. Why does he pick this nobody as a successor? And the answer kind the question kinds of kind of answers itself and that if you're basically a pharaoh and you have this unique level of power, because in a sense, by winning World War II, FDR almost becomes the president of the world, uh, especially when he sort of imagines that Stalin works for him, which does not turn out to be the case. But he kind of went to his grave without knowing that. He saw Russia kind of as an American satellite state. And then he dies, and who replaces him? A nobody. And so, you know, it's this very pharaonic gesture where you say, okay, I'm the king of the world, and who's going to replace me? Nobody. 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 Yeah. And so, after me. After me, nobody. And so, what happens in DC is that basically the central power, largely a sort of an informal power that FDR had enjoyed over all of these agencies, flows back down into the agencies. That power sort of disappears. And so Truman doesn't have the same power and the same position that FDR had. Truman basically has to sort of, you know, he has to work with the agencies. He doesn't really have the, you know, sort of, he doesn't have the power base to control them in a way. And so what you see is basically what creates this administrative state, this deep state that we have, is basically the sort of post-FDR system that, that he lets go of that the he lets go. and he, doesn't put anybody cuts, else. He cuts the wires, yeah. and once he cuts the wires, they can't be reattached. And so power basically flows down into this oligarchic regime that he's established. And at the time, you know, institutions age. 
And so at the time, that seemed very, very okay because you're looking at Washington, D.C., which is this enormously energetic thing, which has just conquered the world, which can perform seeming miracles basically at any time, which was really, in a way, when you look at New Deal D.C., what it reminds me of personally, because I have the Silicon Valley background, it reminds me much more of a startup than it reminds me of D.C. today. It could really do things. So let's let's talk about that for a moment, and I do actually want to get back to the that evolutionary story of the of the administrative state. I think there's a there's an inherent um, takeover that happens anytime that you have a highly powerful group of secretive organizations that are part of the intelligence apparatus. I think it's actually inevitable that sooner or later those, if they have any real power, will be the power. But to get back to the people who you mentioned, specifically Roosevelt and Lincoln, one of the discussions we were having was about kind of power and efficiency and the ability to get things done. Those were people who you've signaled out as being people who ruled in an almost monarchical way. They are also, um, they're also terrible human beings who did really awful things and moved the country in, at times, terrible directions, even if you grant Lincoln a, a huge amount of credit, if it is deserved for the result of the Civil War, you still have to note the cost oh, that sure, it sure. had and the horrible, horrible actions that were undertaken during it from the alien and sedition to the way in which the war was prosecuted that was beyond brutal and terrible in many ways. So both FDR and and Lincoln, who were the the examples there of, of the closest that we've had maybe to monarchs among the presidency, were awful, just awful. Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, the the obviously there are many sort of different degrees of awful. And um you know, it's hard. I mean, it's it's uh, you know, it's it's very easy to criticize FDR and Lincoln personally for what they did, and uh, you know, they certainly were um, you know created a lot of military violence. I would say I don't really regard either of those wars as necessary wars. And so, if you're choosing a monarch, you definitely need to be a very careful about what you're choosing. I would say, though, that the period that we live in is a very different period from that period. And in in specific, when you look at the 19th and 20th centuries, you see just an enormous amount of potential for violence in those periods. You see that people are much more violent. Um, You see, like, you know, the number of people that wanted actually wanted the civil war to happen on both sides were quite considerable. You'll see people, I mean, most Americans today, adults, adult males have never even been in a fist fight, right? You know, which is really historically extremely unusual. You have very, very pacified populations. And so when you look historically at these sort of urbanized, pacified populations, what you see is that actually a world in which sort of violent energy is not diffused among the population in which people have really gone just sort of no longer capable of acting in this pre-modern, basically human way because violence and humanity have been linked as long as, I mean, certainly since the chimpanzee days, right? And um, 
So it's a little more comparable in terms of a kind of depoliticized and demilitarized population. A better example would be, for example, the Roman Empire, where, you know, which is sort of founded, which comes into existence as an agglomeration of sort of all of these very militant city-states, each of which is its own nation with its own sort of army kind of, you know, formed out of the people. And at a certain point, basically, the people, the urbanized population of the Mediterranean world, which is the Roman Empire, becomes depoliticized and demilitarized. So, for example, one of the effects that you see when the empire collapses is you don't see that these city-states, you know, people talk about, oh, what the American empire, or even, you know, America itself splitting up. You don't see when the Roman empire collapses these city-states returning to their former military and political independence. You don't see Athens forming an army and kind of returning to the days of Pericles or anything like that. And so when you're looking at this sort of situation, democracy comes into existence because the people have force. They are armed, they are the militia, they are people who are sort of politically activated. And when you see a politically and, and, and militarily deactivated population, then democracy is simply no longer an option in a way. And your only options are oligarchy and monarchy. And if you want oligarchy, you must be happy with what we have now. Well, I suppose there are different ways to do uh, monarchy, and maybe we'll talk about those a little bit. But when we get back from the break, I actually want to mount something of a defense for the ceremonial monarchy as a role that might be useful. I'm not fully convinced that of this, but I will give it a try shortly. You are listening to The Matt Asher Show on Keystalk FM. Welcome back to the Matt Asher Radio Show on Keystalk FM. I am talking with Curtis Yarbin, and we are talking about different types of government with a focus on monarchy, which is the form that Curtis is arguing for. And I can see a way he is arguing for not just the ceremonial kind of monarchy that we have in the UK right now, where the queen is a a figurehead more than anything else. He's arguing for a system in which the monarch has power, kind of absolute power, perhaps. It's like the CEO of the government. Like the CEO of the government. But I want to make the case here, as best I can, that there might even be some value in the ceremonial monarch in our, our current world. And I was in Toronto, as many of my listeners know, until about a year ago when I was able to escape down here to Florida, uh, the lovely Florida Keys. And one of the things I thought about before I left was how much what they had there in Canada, what they have, is a someone who would become, who would be a very lovely ceremonial monarch in Trudeau. He is 
a beautiful human being. He's lovely to look at. He's well-spoken. He has social graces. He has breeding. He comes from, for those who don't know, uh, he's the son of another Trudeau. I thought he was actually the son of Fidel Castro. But, uh. <laughs> <laughs> so one of, the, one of the rumors swirling around uh, is that, uh, is, is that uh, Trudeau is the son of Fidel Castro. His father, uh, Pierre, was down in that area. And in around the time, there's uh, not his father, his mother. Um, and, the, you know, if you look at the pictures in a certain way. But regardless, he was raised in the... Uh, in the in that household and is a very well-groomed attractive man who would be actually very well suited to going to the kind of ceremonial events that a nation needs people to go to to the kind of whatever it is the versions of groundbreaking or whatever it is that the queen right now does in terms of those kind of state functions that are much more about blessings the problem is that he is not capable of governing in any way, shape, or form. And maybe this is where I come around a little bit to understanding the idea of effectiveness. But if a country like Canada was able to cleave off the role of the ceremonial person, and this could even well, be Canada someone who's... Still, uh, the, the ceremonial monarch of Canada is still Elizabeth II. It, it is. But I think that they would be much better served if Trudeau himself became, if it was an official office, to be the ceremonial guy, the kind of mascot of the country. But that's already and the way then, it works, in a sense. But he, has to, he does have power, and he's failing at it. In an, in an extraordinarily miserable way. So let me just finish up. Sure. Imagine that you split up the office into these two roles and that you hire him to be the pretty face who goes around and represents the country in that way. And then you have an actual politician who's going in there and doing the dirty work and maybe is accountable in some electoral way, but nonetheless is someone who is not bred to be a figurehead, but someone who's bred to solve actual political problems. And so before um, COVID, there was a, an issue that Canada had with China. There was a, a person that, um, that, that the, there was some uh, machinations there with Canada, with a person who was in, our con in Canada, who the, um, the Americans wanted arrested, who was Chinese. A proper functioning functionary would have realized exactly what they needed to do and done it. Instead, Trudeau made the absolute wrong decision, and it caused huge problems for, uh, for the relationship between uh, Canada and China, and it for no win whatsoever, right? If you had a competent, effective leader, they would have seen right away what to do. If you separate out those two roles, perhaps you have a greater chance for there being the person who is effective to the extent to which you need the government to be effective versus the person who is the pretty face. I don't think, I mean, if you look at sort of the history of American monarchs in which I'd basically list Washington, Lincoln, and FDR, um, and it's sort of interesting because you see those are like 
that that's a time series that's like 75 or 80 years apart. It's like the San Andreas Fault causing an earthquake or something. And it's been 75 or 80 years since the last one, right? And so what are you saying about our current What moment? I'm saying about our current government is that you think of, you know, the United States as this democracy that's lasted almost 250 years. In fact, what you're looking at is a, is a sort of an oscillating series in which you have monarchy that decays into oligarchy that can only be disrupted by a monarchy, which then decays into an oligarchy and so on and so forth. And so when you make that point, I guess I would say a couple of things. One is that, you know, if you had a leader, a leader who is actually in charge of the government, um, that would be a very different position than exists in any of these governments today. And what you actually have rather than a leader is a decision maker. And the way that all of these oligarchical institutions work is that they're sort of structured like they sort of have the shape of like a private sector organization or a military organization where sort of commands come down from the top and then as a subordinate it's your responsibility to implement you know whatever your superior tells you to do this is the way that effective organizations work the way that a bureaucracy works is very different what a manager in a bureaucracy really means is an exception handler and so everything in a bureaucracy works by procedure. You're, you're following a process. Normally, you're doing what the process tells you to do. And then if there's an exception to the process where it's like, well, I don't really see the rules for this, you sort of kick the decision upward. So the set of sort of decisions, you know, when you're talking about an effect, uh, you know, a quote, effective quote, leader, you're basically saying, well, we, we, what we would really like is someone who handled these exceptions better. I think that is fair. That is Certainly very, in the in the case very, of Trudeau, he handled this exception exceptionally poorly. Sure. And so, for example, we can look, we can see individual decisions being made in various ways. For example, I think that, um, you know, I'm not in general a huge fan of um, J.R. Biden. However, there was a case recently in which Actually, a decision was punted all the way up to him, which was the decision to withdraw from Afghanistan. And I believe that that is a decision that Biden made himself personally. I believe that most of the institutions around him wanted him to make the other decision. Instead, he opted to essentially continue the Trump policy and continue withdrawing from Afghanistan, which caused a great deal of heartburn in both the state and defense departments because it meant a lot of people's jobs went away and a lot of people were exposed as having failed. And he personally made that decision to say, no, we are ending this war. Good for him. Right. But to sort of mistake that for what it pretends to be. And when we use words like we're saying, this person is in power, that person is in power, this person is a leader, that person is a leader. There's an Orwellian nature to these words because these people are not actually in power. And when we imagine giving the chief executive of the executive branch the same level of control over the executive branch that a private sector CEO has over the company, it wouldn't be a question of, oh, this decision or that decision. It would be a question of reorganizing the whole thing essentially into oblivion. 
because these systems have gone so far from their sort of original purpose, you're not talking about decisions about this relationship. It's like the way people imagine, you know, if you're a believer in this oligarchy, you believe that the system is basically on the right track. And the question is sort of which of the course corrections is right or non-right. Once you start to believe that the system is so far from reality that, you know, let's just take U.S. foreign policy. It's like there are various ways of sort of justifying the fact that the U.S., has all of these bases in Germany and Korea and places like this. And you can say, well, you know, this is because of, well, you know, the reality is if there were no U.S. bases in Germany, nobody be, would, would be like, well, America needs to occupy Germany. What you have is these basically a bunch of historical decisions in an institution with a whole lot of momentum, which simply cannot be changed. And so when we sort of look at this kind of media narrative of saying, oh, so-and-so made a right decision, so-and-so made a wrong decision. I'm like, it's actually the decisions that are not decisions at all. It's the, it's the, the inertia, it's the, the momentum. And so most of the decisions mm -hmm. that sort of should be decisions do not appear on that sort of media screen at all. And so actually 99.9% .9 of the sort of decisions are made by default in a way that you never see. And so if you had actual real central authority, whether that authority was granted by hereditary monarchy or whether it was an elected monarchy or whether it was simply seized by force or whatever, you would basically be going from someone who was taking 0.01% of those decisions to someone who was taking all of those decisions. This, uh, this seems almost like a, a fatalistic kind of uh, situation, right, that you're describing in which the, the inertia and the momentum, I guess it's right. the same thing, and, are, are everything. And the inertia and the momentum are essentially everything. So if you're like, okay, what should Canada's relationship with China be? You know, if you were to ask that question from a very basic level, you would basically be like, well, should Canada have its own industrial base and produce the things that it uses? Or should it outsource all of its production to China? This is a decision that is taken by default. And so the importance of that decision with respect to Canada is a much, much more important decision than how should we treat this diplomatic incident that the foreign officer or whatever they I, call I'm, it. I'm, I actually, I'm not so sure about this was a, a Huawei executive yes, yeah, who I got the uh, arrested and uh, on from the uh, pushing of of Trump, and it was it was in this case the absolute wrong decision to be made. My point was simply that if we, you know, if we let people vote for the pretty face separately from how they vote for the, uh, you know, for the executive, then maybe we would be well. It, uh, once you were off. once you were going to admit that, people would very quickly forget about the pretty face, and the executive would become the pretty face. And again, you know, when you use the word executive, that word doesn't mean exception handler. And so when you basically, once you sort of admit the, you know, once you change the words to admit the truth, the system essentially sort of no longer works. Because if people knew that they were voting for the chief figurehead, they would have very little interest in voting. Curtis Yarvin is a public intellectual and perhaps the most prominent 
public intellectual who is an advocate for monarchism as a system of government. And if you missed the first part of this conversation, I highly recommend that you go to uh, mattasher.com slash 2022 and check out that episode. We're going to continue along with that uh, discussion, but for the listeners, maybe you could give a little bit of information again about your background, and in particular, last time you mentioned that you had some direct exposure to what's sometimes called the administrative state from your parents. Yeah, my name is Curtis Yarvin. I blog at graymirror.substack.com. That's gray with an A, the American way. Um, I am indeed, um, you know, America's most prominent monarchist blogger, which is an odd role to have. And I'm a monarchist in terms of, not in terms of liking a kind of ceremonial costume monarchy, but in terms of believing that um, our government is desperately in need of competent management and in the form of a competent and effective CEO. And so, you know, this time, uh, last time we talked about some of the kind of abstract uh, ideas of monarchy. This time, I'd like to talk about sort of the specifics of what you might actually expect from an effective monarchical regime, supposing that such a thing would actually be possible, uh, which I actually believe it is. Um, Matt, you mentioned my my personal background. I um, have never worked in government. I've been a a Silicon Valley CEO and have done a number of other interesting things, but um, both of my parents worked in what's known as the deep state. My mother worked for the Department of Energy. Uh, My father was a foreign service officer in the State Department, and my stepfather uh, teaches at Hopkins and was on the Hill for 20 years, and he actually worked in the 80s for Joe Biden for, uh, for several years, so Joe Biden has actually kissed my mother. Uh, so I feel like I kind of know the inside of this system in a way that is sort of different from the way that it's presented in the media. And, you know, the term deep state, which is originally a Turkish term, interestingly enough, is not too inapplicable. Um, generally, political scientists will say the administrative state, but the administrative state is what really sort of runs the country. And um And it runs the country in a way that's sort of very inertial and very like sort of dependent on existing organizations. It's like my, one of my favorite examples is that if you look at the US military, you'll see that it has all of these bases in places like Germany and Korea and Japan, which would seem to make absolutely no sense. It's yeah, like I think if, you mentioned that if we were doing things from scratch we, right now. We would not be like, oh, let's occupy Germany. And you know, and that's sort of the, the tip of the iceberg in terms of kind of the inertial structure of government, which is sort of operating on passive decisions that were active decisions 40, 50, 60 years ago, but which no longer make a great deal of sense. And so those decisions have started to become sort of just increasingly strange to people. And, you know, maybe we could talk about the Ukraine for the moment. So as as we're recording this, there are some uh, potential hostilities between the U.S. and Russia over Ukraine, as or, I, or as we grew up calling it, the Ukraine, the Ukraine, which yes, is a, which is actually which is 
which is actually it's, it's sort of an important and and relevant distinction because if you say the Ukraine, as we said when we were kids, you're talking about it um, as a part of Russia. And you and I grew up thinking of Kiev, or as they call it now, Kiev, or something like that, um, as uh, as a as, you know the capital of this um, independent state, which was carved out of the. Um, the Soviet Union called uh, Ukraine. Um, and Ukraine became, in a sense, part of the American empire, part of the international community, as we call it. Um, and um, suddenly the idea of the U.S. fighting a war, I mean, there was this great tweet that came in a little while ago, sort of, you know, fresh from, from our experience in Afghanistan, the graveyard of empires, our next adventure invading Russia in winter. And I have to I have to put this in there. This was mentioned very long time ago on my podcast I had on um the uh the guy who ran Spy magazine for uh, a little while and he uh, we talked briefly about they had a graphic once in Spy magazine that would pitted countries against one another like an NCAA tournament sure. bracket. And as you kind of narrowed it down and you went through, Afghanistan was one of the two kind of finalist nations that made it through having dispatched at that point Russia already. Yeah. Uh, and then it got a chance uh, more yeah, recently real to underdog. dispatch it's like, us. It's like Princeton winning the NCAAs or something. you know. <laughs> and, and, and yet uh, they just kept advancing. <laughs> some tough motherfuckers over there. You know, and and yeah, I mean the um, and so you have this sort of bizarre idea of the U.S. fighting a war to keep a historical province of Russia as an independent country, or purportedly independent country, because in fact, you know, it seems to be either. Um, an outpost of the West or a part of Russia. If you say the Ukraine, the word Ukraine in Russia refers to means sort of borderland. Um, it's sort of, it's the edge of Russia. And there's this interesting sort of linguistic phenomenon. What we call the Ukrainian language used to historically be known as Ruthenian. And Ruthenia was basically a part of Central Europe that kind of went back and forth between um, Poland and the Austro-Hungarian Empire, that part of what we now call Ukraine was actually never um, um, part of the Russian Empire, but they speak a language that's historically very related to Russian. That language was essentially, it was never really an urban language, it was sort of a country language, was also spoken in this part of Russia that depending on which part has been Russian either since the 17th century or the 18th century. Um, and so you have basically this strange specter. It's like as if, um, you know, Russia were to fight a war to, um, you know, make sure Texas was an independent country. And, you know, Texas was once an independent country. You know, are there cultural differences between Texas and Massachusetts? Absolutely. Do people from Texas talk kind of funny? They definitely do. Well, that's but a matter of perspective. It's a matter of perspective. But if you go to Kiev or Kiev or whatever you're supposed to call it, you will find that people in Kiev speak Russian. Um, and in fact, one of the funniest things about the so-called country of Ukraine is that the president of Ukraine does not even really speak Ukrainian. 
<laughs> and he's a Russian speaker um, because he's actually ethnically neither Ukrainian nor Russian. He's a Jew, but as a Jew, they all spoke Russian. And um, so you have the, this president of this country whose president doesn't even speak the language of the country, which is, you know, essentially this kind of rural peasant dialect. And moreover, um, you know, far from being sort of a success story in any way, this so-called nation of Ukraine is this sort of, you know, very strange, corrupt thing. Which corrupt has, seems to be the word that people have to say ranked, when they uh, mention. I believe they're ranked 117th on Transparency's inter International's ratings of like countries, which is pretty low. We have some seen some transparency with respect to the Biden family. And what we've seen out of there from Ukraine is not super encouraging unless you're a member of the Biden family or otherwise interested in the governance of oil and gas corporations. The great thing about corruption is that it's a wonderful opportunity to profit if you just look at it in a particular sure. way. And the thing is, I would be far from suggesting that sort of the personal interactions of the Biden family with Ukraine are the cause of this conflict, I would say more that basically these outposts of the American empire, whether it's Afghanistan or Ukraine, create a lot of jobs in Washington. And so there's a lot of people who basically have something to do with kind of supervising or advising, you know, the line between supervising and advising is a delicate one. You know, the government of this so-called nation of Ukraine. And just just like, you know, the fall of the um, puppet state of Afghanistan caused, left a lot of people in D.C. That was looking, the, the puppet state as propped up by the yes, United States. Yes, the satellite state, whatever you want to call it. Puppet state is a somewhat extreme way of, of putting it. Um, but the fall of that left a lot of people in D.C. who had jobs managing that show, if you'll allow me to, you know, does FCC let you say this on there? Anything like that that you say will be bleeped. And so if you heard a bleep, that was Curtis yes, saying yes. something naughty. Yes. And the second, the and, second and I am talking here with Curtis Yarvin on Keys Talk. And the second word in that was show, and you can guess what the first half of it was. And that was the that was the Republic of Afghanistan. And that the end of that has left a lot of people without jobs and or without something to do. I mean, they'll get reassigned, you know, they won't be fired, but it's been very damaging to a lot of people's careers. Um, certainly a lot of people in the State Department went there to advise the regime and a lot of people in DOD, basically um, in the military, needed to get, you know, what's called having their ticket punched, which means they needed combat experience. And where do you get combat experience but in a live fire training zone, such as Afghanistan, that's all gone now. And so when you're basically looking at the strange situation or the sort of strange constituency for let's invade Russia in winter uh, or let's have a war. Tra in traditionally, historically speaking, historically not, not speaking. So, so much so that there is the uh, famous scene from The Princess Bride when they're having the, uh, the little contest with the drinks that they have and whichever one is going to be poisoned and uh, – the oh the little actor Andre what was his uh, name um um oh my God um Wallace Shawn 
Is that him? Andre the Giant is the big one. The oh, little yes, one is Wallace Shawn, right. the longtime editor of The New Yorker, actually. And, oh, and really? yes, 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 The Sicilian. The Sicilian. Right, and he right. says, you know, and he says, among the other rules of the of the world are, you know, never, never start a land war in Asia. Never start a land war in Asia. And, uh, you know, never, um, um, well, it's something about a Sicilian, right? Uh, yes. You know, but of course, our hero. Never mess with the Sicilian when death. Is on, on the line. line. Of course, our hero outsmarts him, right? But, uh, you know, somehow I don't think that, um, uh, you know, I, I can't really imagine America prevailing in this conflict because there's clearly absolutely no will. Like, you know, there are very few Americans who feel passionately about the freedom of Ukraine. To give them money other than Hunter Biden. Yeah, 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 yeah. To give them money other than Hunter Biden, and you know, uh, um, um, you know, money was flowing in both directions there, right? It's a very complicated true, situation. True. Was, um, mm -hmm. And 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 so you can really separate. What's fascinating about this situation is that you can really separate the people whose voices are kind of due to these connections to these institutions, and that includes, of course, not just mainstream Democrats, but also mainstream Republicans. And so you see, you know, there's a strong bipartisan consensus, you know, that this aggression will not stand, that America needs to support democracy overseas, that we need to stand up against, you know, the creeping tide of authoritarianism. And, you know, it's all of these sort of slogans that kind of resonated well 50, 60, 40 years ago, where people, you know, who are kind of uninvolved and unconnected to th these things just look at this and are just like, what? Like, why, why would you do this? Like, what? Right. So, but isn't this an argument in favor of kind of populism more than uh, anything well, in yeah. that so the population of the U.S., we, they get it right. They understand they do, this is they, not they a, do, a good idea. They do get it right. And they sort of get it right in this kind of passive way in which sort of getting it right is kind of obvious. And, you know, that's sort of, um, you know, that's definitely a credit to populism by default as an operating principle in terms of like the sort of, there's actually a much simpler problem with populism as, way, as a way of running things, which is that the people may sort of give the right answer when asked the question, but that's not really enough to have power. To have power, you need to believe that you have a right to have power and you need to feel sort of the right to rule. And there are so many cases of basically policies, you know, immigration is another one that I could mention, where essentially it's been demonstrated again and again later in the course of the century that actually the people do not feel the right to rule. And they basically, what will happen again and again, let's take, for example, say to really digress, let's take, for example, two cases of policies that have been sort of approved in an undemocratic way, in an unpopulist way, I should say, which are in the 1970s abortion and then in the 1990s and early 2000s gay marriage. In both of those cases, we see basically propositions that are clearly unpopular take power. And what happens when they take power over the objection of the, of the majority is that the majority changes its mind. And it follows power instead of leading power. It develops essentially Stockholm Syndrome. You can recognize that whatever you think of abortion or gay marriage, 
And and I just I have to jump in here. This is I guess a a, a semi digression, but I think it's an important point. Uh, A lot of the time, people on the right talk about how culture, how politics is downstream of culture, and so forth. But it is certainly the case that that's a bi directional arrow. And in many cases, you see power is upstream of culture, and actually people conform to the ideas of whatever is in power. And that is a very natural can you, human tendency. Can you pick that apart a bit? Because I think uh, that's a really important it's a thing to fascinating, say. It's a fascinating thing about human psychology. You've probably heard of Stockholm Syndrome, which is a very similar effect. It's like the desire to be on the same page with power is a very adaptive the desire. The desire to be regime compliant. The desire to be regime compliant and to comply with not the figurehead of power, but sort of the real power. You know, when we talk about Trump being in power, what we mean is Trump being in office. You know, I don't think Trump is actually personally capable of holding power. Um, but if we certainly imagine a world in which you know, whatever came out of his Twitter feed or what used to be his Twitter feed was actually something that people in the executive branch obeyed, we would be talking about a very different system. And people, I think, unconsciously sense the direction of power. And even if they're, even people in the red state world who are sort of very opposed to the actual powers that be tend to find themselves going along with it 10 or 15 years later. They have very little staying power. If you go really far... This, this would be the, the argument, I think, um, maybe most famously made by Michael Malice, that uh, that conservatism is just progressivism doing the speed limit, that yeah. conservatives eventually will come around to defending whatever status quo was established by the progressives right. 10... As if it was, I mean, you know, for example, you can go to South Africa, and in South Africa, they had an election, the last election under the old system of government, where in 1994... Uh, the white population, such as, as the old system used to work, voted with a relatively slim majority to have talks with ANC. And that's the last vote they ever got. And, um, and what's interesting about that is that if you look at the projections that the people who wanted a no vote at that time said, okay, here's what's going to happen if you basically put the ANC in power, if you put Mandela in power, that's very similar to what South Africa looks like today. Uh, it's kind of a mess. And yet, if you talk to anyone who voted no, almost anyone who voted no in 1994, they'll be like, I don't know, I was thinking, I was brainwashed by the old regime, this was clearly an evil system. They have come around. And so they basically, like there are very few white South Africans today who will at least openly say, no, this was a mistake, we should have stuck with apartheid, right? And so what you see again is this tendency for human beings, rightly or wrongly, and both of these things happen. Um, there are certainly cases where the, the, you know, the minority which is in power is right and the majority is wrong. The majority comes around to whatever sort of power is dictating. And what this tells you is that basically, if you put the majority, if you attempt to govern on the basis of majority populism, that majority is always going to find itself outplayed. And that's essentially why a sort of populist model of government basically sort of can't work. 
even when you look at a situation like these foreign policy situations in which the man on the street who is an idiot who is paying no attention is so much more right than the professionals who have PhDs and who make this their careers. That's a very interesting take on that uh, dynamic and interplay between those things. We have to take a break here on Keys Talk FM. I am talking with Curtis Yarvin, and we'll be right back. Welcome back to the Matt Asher Radio Show on Keystalk FM. I am talking about Curtis Yarvin, and we're discussing a number of different things, including monarchy, which is the preferred form of government for uh, Curtis Yarvin. And I've been thinking about it and thinking about it especially in the lens of economics. This is not a system of government that we uh, as Americans have any direct interaction with in my lifetime, certainly. But it would seem to me that it would tend to, well, of course, you have a concentration of power in one person or one kind of group of people. And they're going to be ruling however they want. It would seem like that would inevitably lend to an economic regime that is also very top-down. Very, very, well, very different, I would say. Not necessarily very top-down in terms of like a command economy, because a command economy is essentially a sort of a refusal to let decisions be taken in a decentralized way. If you look at China today, it is certainly not, for the most part, a command economy, yet it is certainly a monarchy, and it's clearly, um, you know, say what you want about the People's Republic of China, but uh, it's certainly an ethos, and they certainly produce uh, everything we use. So uh, you can't really, it's hard to argue that um, America is more economically a success than China. And so I, I guess within the context of the last 20 yes. years, although that is also an overlap with the time at which they've moved very strongly towards capitalism-like structures. Yes, exactly. They're, they're, you know, they have capitalism, but they also have mercantilism. And it's the mercantilist aspect of the Chinese state that is so successful. That this is mercantilism as in, a form, as in protectionism, protectionism of local industry. Protectionism, essentially, yes. Yes. Uh, and, and, you know, this system has been so successful that most of the world's production has moved to China. And to the extent that there are certain things that they still can't do, like make certain kinds of chip making equipment or jet planes, um, you're going to see those lacunae corrected in the next 20 years, at which point sort of the rest of the world will basically be almost at their mercy. And, um, and the whereas, way Africa already is? Yeah. I mean, well, I mean, and, and conversely, if you travel around the United States, you'll see that things are really flourishing in these super zips. Um, and if you go super to... Meaning high-income zip codes, meaning basically people who push paper around and get paid for it. And if you go to the former manufacturing regions of the U.S., you will see just incredible levels of decay and emptiness. And the like, it's very hard 
just for anyone to say on a basically empirical level when they look at a crumbling country which has lost its industries to say our economy is doing great. Um, actually, for most people, our economy is not doing great. And the sort of question of how that, you know, how that came to be and how that sort of could be corrected and kind of what the American economic system looks like at a very, very broad and high level are, again, the kinds of questions that can only be answered or only be sort of changed with a concentration of power and energy in one point with basically, it's like, imagine a company, you know, the best way to sort of think about the question of, you know, what a monarchy means or what a monarchy would do is if you imagine like, you know, a Soviet steel mill that has been basically producing steel at a loss for the last 70 years, and is just a massive disorganization and like low quality products and everything. And then you think about bringing Elon Musk in to run that Soviet steel mill. You know, what is he going to do? Well, he's going to change everything. And so that's everything from sort of the highest level of policy to the lowest level of detail, because everything about the way this is organized is broken. And what you see in America is a strange situation in which America has lost most of its productive industry, but it still feels very, very prosperous. And it still is very, very prosperous. And where that prosperity comes from, unfortunately, is a sort of legacy position which was established when the U.S. was the productive superpower of the world, which basically, and the military superpower of the world, which gave it the sort of reserve currency and this kind of financial center. And it's been riding on that. And it's been riding, riding that time. downhill for a very long time. And, you know, my favorite example of this, which I actually have a personal connection to, is if you've ever driven down US 95 and crossed the Susquehanna at Trenton, you'll note that there's a bridge there and there's a slogan on this bridge, which says Trenton makes the world takes. That slogan was actually coined in a contest by my great, great grandfather. And you look at it and you're just like, what does this even mean? Because I don't know if you've been to Trenton, but it's a burned down hellhole. Um, and it doesn't make Not anything. nearly as nice it as here in the Florida Keys. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I'm, I'd much rather be here. But you're like, what does this even mean? And what it means is that at the time that slogan was coined, New Jersey was very like China. It was a center of industry and production. It was buzzing. It was thriving. Everything was getting done there now. Um, and, you know, my, I'm just going to repeat my proposals, the grand, great-grandson of great-great-grandson of the original composer of the slogan. Um, I hope someone out there who has this power is listening. I believe that what the bridge should really say today as Trenton spends the world lens. Um, that would be the overall slogan for that, the United States That would be right the overall now. slogan for the United States right now. And so when you're in that position of a borrower and, you know, to be in that position of a borrower, a lot of people sort of don't recognize some of the symptoms of that. For example, when the stock market goes up, they're like, oh, things are prosperous. The stock market is going up. Well, if you know anything about accounting, you know, basically double entry bookkeeping. And you may have noticed that um, when your debt goes up, okay, you're like, we're borrowing money. Is this good? But when your equity goes up, that's actually also a liability on your balance sheet. And so when you're looking at a system whose 
liabilities, whose net liabilities need to only need to keep going up for the system to keep functioning, you're basically looking at a fundamentally money losing structure. So to, to, to kind of put this into an analogy or whatever, or um, to compare it to an argument I've heard from others, I think this is the Eric Weinstein argument, which is essentially that one of the problems in the US is that we have banked on eternal growth, that we have set up a financial system that depends upon there being endless growth in productivity. Well, growth and is not even else. growth in productivity. I'm talking about growth in liabilities. Because your equity is a liability. And so essentially what you have is a system right now that basically depends on a wealth effect. So when you see basically your portfolio going up, your house going up, you're like, this is very, very healthy. My house goes up, I can spend more money. You have this source, kind of source of income, which is almost a kind of universal basic income for the rich, which is asset price inflation. And you have a system today which is existentially dependent on asset price inflation, which is right. If that stops, then... if that stops, mm -hmm. the whole system reverses and starts to contract very, very rapidly and hard, which is exactly what happened in two thousand eight, and which is a little bit set up to happen until to, they started blowing back. Until up they started up. blowing it back up, and and that's you know my opinion. This is not. A forecast. This is not investment advice, but um, if you look at the situation the Fed is in right now, where you're seeing historically unprecedented levels of consumer price inflation, which is very much downstream from asset price inflation, you have this problem where you're basically pumping more money into the economy because you're literally increasing the spending power of people constantly because look, my index funds went up. You know, you have this concept of passive investing, which is completely alien to capitalism. I mean, the whole purpose of investment is basically to reward success and punish failure. It should be a to zero. To reward good decisions about it should capital. Be a, it should be a zero-sum game. Mm -hmm. And it's not a zero-sum game. It's a positive-sum game, which is why passive investing exists. And so you have a system which is essentially dependent on what they used to call trickle-down economics, where you're basically, the Fed is buying bonds, which makes lowers interest rates, which makes rich people richer. We're actually running in this strange sort of um, divide by zero economics because if you know anything about uh, accounting, you know that there's a formula for the value for the price of capital. And that formula for the price of basically capital, which produces a stream of income, involves dividing by interest rates. Right, when, when your interest rates are zero, when your interest rates are forced to zero, when you basically have the gas pedal pressed to the metal, you're in this regime of divide by zero economics. And so what you see when you look at the US economy is that it's existentially dependent on the ability to inflate asset prices. And if sort of that, you know, like when you see the sort of gas pedal pressed to the metal, suddenly you're starting to see, hey, wow, we've sort of used up, we've burnt out our, our sort of capacity for like cheap overseas labor to interrupt the wage price spiral of the 70s. You've seen, you know, sort of existential pressure on commodity supply where energy prices keep going up. You're like the ability to push the pedal to the metal and not have people find that their grocery bills start going up has kind of run out of space to operate. And so 
that you know starts to set up a situation where, first of all, when you're looking at the sort of bubble blowing, it's very easy for those bubbles to reverse. When they reverse, they come down much harder and faster than when they went up. This is the uh, the this, old saw that you take the stairs up and then the elevator you down. You take the stairs up and up. then the elevator down. And so, you know, that puts basically the Fed in this very rough position where it's not even clear that sort of having a collapse like that is going to reverse inflation very much. And so you start to get into this very 70s stagflationary situation where the market sort of continues its grim slide and prices keep going up. And so you're basically, it sort of becomes harder and harder to justify reblowing this bubble because you're increasingly sort of the reality of the situation in which basically the Fed is running a trickle down economic scheme that works by subsidizing rich people um, and is like a reality which is sort of politically intolerable. It was very easy to sort of reverse the incipient COVID collapse by saying, well, here's this exogenous emergency that you know we need to sort of do something about at this monetary level. It was a, level. a wonderful pretext for flooding. It was a wonderful money pretext for flooding money. Hands of certain people. Into the hands of certain people, right? i.e. rich people who own capital, right? You know, which is sort of rich people by definition. And now you're in a situation where basically this whole idea of, of kind of subsidizing the rich is hard to justify. And you're looking at a situation where sort of people think of the stock market as a sort of natural economic system that rewards winners and good decisions. And look, I bought this technology index fund and it only goes up and up and up. And we can buy a new boat this year because my, you know, uh, my, my stocks went up because I made such good decisions of buying the Vanguard S&P 500 index fund, you know. And then when that starts to reverse, it becomes sort of like... It's, it, you know, a reversal, as we found in 2008, a reversal in the financial markets causes basically the sort of insta-depression everywhere. Um, and the capacity of that insta-depression to reverse the inflationary phenomena in the market is not very clear. Certainly at a certain level of deflation, obviously, you're going to reverse inflation. But, you know, as we found in the 70s, that's a very high level of reversal. Moreover, there's a kind of underlying health of the economy and the productive system that I think was much greater in some ways in the 70s than now, which is proven by the policy, the reversed stagflation, if you remember Volcarism. This and was very, very high interest rates. Very, very high interest rates. And so what Volcker said is we're going to do the opposite of quantitative easing. Easing, We're going to do quantitative tightening. And we're not going to push money into this system. Instead, if you want to borrow, you got to borrow from somebody who wants to lend. And we're going to let the market set that price. And it turned out that the market set that price, at, I think it peaked at roughly 20% interest rates. Yeah, that, and that was once you let the market market sorted out, the market is going to take a rate that is at least enough to cover expected inflation. Yeah. And if inflation is running high, then your interest rate has to be running above that. Yeah, I mean, that, that sure, I mean, it's, it's, it's not even, it's just supply and demand in lending and borrowing, and they let supply and demand set that. 
and supply and demand set it at 20%. And it turned out that the American economy at 20%, it was like getting a workout. It was like a very fat person getting like, no, you're going to have to run a marathon every week or you're going to die. And it turned out that the American productive sector was strong enough to do that. If you applied that same regimen today, it would be like taking your like dying grandmother with leukemia and saying, go out and run a marathon. It just, I don't think it would work. Which, which kind of backs us into a corner overall as a, you know, as a society and will even more so back us into a corner if de-dollarization happens and other countries walk away from the currency. But you we're see an almost a, Argentinian future. You, you very much could. And maybe we will get into that particular uh, scenario as soon as we get back. Welcome back to the Matt Asher Radio Show on Keys Talk FM. I am talking with Curtis Yarvin. And just before the break, we got into the possibility of the United States becoming like Argentina. What does that mean? What would that look like for us? What it means is essentially that the prosperity of the country reverts to its actual productive power. And in particular... Um, the United States is running something like a trillion dollar trade deficit. And in terms of the products that the U.S. produces and does not consume that the rest of the world needs, we're mostly talking about agricultural products. Um, and so when you're looking at a country, most of whose prosperity comes from agriculture, you're looking at a much country. Uh, Argentina is still, of course, a major beef producer. They produce a lot of beef. Um, but they, uh, you know, in 100 years ago, it was actually one of the world's richer countries. And you'll, if you go to Buenos Aires today, you'll see all this beautiful architecture that comes from being, you know, the Paris of South the America. The Paris of South America. The Paris yeah. of South mm -hmm. America. Actually, they used to call um, Detroit the Paris of the Midwest. And so, you know, uh, we've seen, we've already seen a certain amount of decay in this country, although we prefer not to think about it. But the level of decay that would sort of come from reverting this dollarized global financial system under which sort of all of America derives rents from being the world currency and the kind of center of the world financial system, which is a product of inertia. And that inertia is very difficult to change. There's a lot of dollar liabilities around. It would be very, very difficult to re-standardize the world economy. It would, but on the other hand, you can imagine it happening. Moreover, the situation I would argue that this sort of situation of surviving on essentially monetary rents has an interesting historical parallel, which is the situation of Spain at the time of the Spanish Empire. And the Spanish Empire, of course, came to South America, and there they discovered large quantities of gold and silver. Mm -hmm. The effect of basically being a monetary superpower on Spain is an effect that I would argue that Spain has still not recovered from. Because that basically created what's sometimes called Dutch disease by economists in Spain, where basically, because Spain was a monetary superpower producing things in Spain, 
rather than importing them from places with less gold and silver, became simply non-economic. And so you basically took this country that was sort of thriving at every level, that had kind of a thriving productive sector that could have been, if things had been different, a leader in the Industrial Revolution, and you basically turned it into a follower and a consumer, and instead the Industrial Revolution happened in places that didn't have these resources. Today's industrial revolution has happened in places like China and Japan, which basically have no alternative but to produce for a living. And so when you have a situation, it's like basically a poor person becoming rich. Rich people just naturally have less energy and less kind of, you know, desire and less need to get up and go. And, you know, their trust fund, you know, bearing children have even less desire to do uh, anything. And so you have this nation that in ways, in a sort of national sense, is kind of already on kind of universal basic income already. It's already a country that basically depends on unearned income to a substantial extent. That's how the U.S. can basically import a trillion dollars more than it makes every year. And if there's any sense in which that gets cut off, you basically see the country's prosperity reverting to correspond to its actual productive power. Which would be a huge hit to quality of living. Well, everywhere, everywhere. I mean, the thing is, you go to all these places in the United States, which used to be centers of manufacturing, and you'll see all these prosperous people, and you're like, what do they do? And the answer is push paper around, lend money to each other, fire, it's the fire economy, you know, finance, you know, industry and real estate that basically sort of depends on this kind of upward financial spiral. Right. This is the ever increasing thing that everything now depends on. Everything everything depends on asset price inflation. It's the pyramid scheme economy and everything depends on this sort of slow or increasingly non-slow when you see the stock market going up by 25% in a year. It, everything depends on this massive financial subsidy. If that continuing subsidy reverses or even it can't even stay flat. Like even if the stock market is flat for a year, that is recessionary. There is no stable state. There's no steady state there. And, you know, as you said earlier, it's the stairs up and the elevator down. And so you have this situation in which the kind of financial managers of the economy need to keep the stairs going up. And if they stop climbing the stairs, elevator down. And if sort of there's climbing the stairs and they're pumping in so much money into the system that you're getting more and more inflationary phenomena, they're in a very tough situation because the only way to reverse that is to take the elevator down and nobody wants to take the elevator nobody, down. Nobody wants to do that. Nobody has the kind of the, the, the will for that and they would be punished for it, which brings me to one of the arguments that I've heard in favor of monarchism, might be one that you've made yourself, which is that you enable someone to have a low time preference in the sense that they are able to institute policies that might involve a high degree of short-term pain for long-term gain because they're not worried about being um, thrown out. Sure. I mean, and, and the thing is, when you look at sort of a system that essentially continually depends on expanding its liabilities, such as our system, you know, there is a private sector way of reversing that, which is bankruptcy. 
And what bankruptcy typically does, it doesn't even necessarily involve sort of short-term pain. It involves a kind of general restructuring of everything. And the kind of general restructuring of everything to say, what you're doing in a, in a corporate bankruptcy is you're saying, okay, here we have this thing that's continually losing money. So we're gonna raise a whole bunch of money. We're gonna expand the share base a lot. We're gonna say, this is a fundamentally, like the United States is still a valuable property, right? If you're putting say General Motors through bankruptcy, General Motors physically does not have a negative net worth. You know, this is a salvageable thing. And so, but in order to salvage it, you need to restructure the way it does business completely. That involves a lot of change in everybody's existence in this. And it involves sort of creating a buffer. And then you're just like, we're going to keep burning. We're going to like, you know, a company in restructuring keeps losing money, but it's losing money on a trajectory to come back and start the second making derivative money. Of yeah, the second derivative, changes. right? The, you know, and, and so the level of like, again, central authority that it takes to basically say, okay, we're going to plot a path back to this system breaking even, which at a level of international economics means running a zero trade deficit, um, because your trade deficit is essentially a measure of how much the nation defined as a firm is losing then, you know, that requires, you know, things like returning the whole supply chain to America, you know, saying, okay, like, you know, I think Tim Cook of Apple basically, get, you know, was asked at one point why he doesn't make computers in the United States. And he's like, basically, look, you know, in China, if you basically need a process engineering change, like, you know, a chain new kind of screw, you can get that done in like, you know, 36 hours or whatever. Um, and in China, basically, when you have like a convention of like process engineers, it fills a stadium. And in America, the set of people that, you know, know how to do that, you know, wouldn't even fill a high school auditorium because that whole supply chain has left. It's just gone. And those people will be old. And so the idea of basically saying, no, you're going to return production to the United States involves basically having much more expensive production, especially at first. Mm -hmm. The decision to say, okay, wow, you know, the price of iPhones is going to go up by 250%. We're sorry, that's the only way to do it. Maybe your iPhones will be of low quality. Maybe there will even be a shortage of iPhones. You know, who's going to basically say, okay, you're going to take that kind of pain in order to get back to, again, it's the low time preference thing, you know, in order to basically not be Argentina in 10 years, you're going to have some uncomfortable changes locally. And ideally, those changes would be more focused around, wow, you're going to have to make do with your old iPhone rather than you're on the street on unemployment. So the, the ideal scenario then in terms of bringing in someone with a, a high degree of power that they are comfortable with uh, with the idea that it's going to last and they're going yeah. to be around for a while is that then they do something in the best interests of that comp of that country, which is I, I almost said company, but I think yeah, that that's the, the the vibe, right? Yeah. But the, so that's that's kind of the rosy scenario. The opposite scenario that I often think about, if you were to actually move towards this, is that that person who gathers absolute power is not so much interested in the long term economic 
output of the country, but just in enjoying the rewards of being in a position, right. something and like the Kim family in North yeah, Korea, that's, that's, which is a lovely, viewed through kind of a a very dystopian uh, evil, if you're an evil person, and many people are psychopaths, if you're viewed from a psychopath perspective, it's probably more enjoyable to be the King Kim in North Korea than to be the person who is slogging through another decade of economic malaise in order to get to a place where the country overall is economically profitable, but you don't have the absolute power of of that. We're sort of, you know, like... Looking at things through a 20th century lens, one of the things that people do when they use sort of historical analogies is they use this kind of fisheye lens in which the present is much more relevant than the past. And so, you know, one of the problems with looking at things through a 20th century lens is that you're looking at systems of government like monarchy, which has basically been the way 98% of the world has been governed for 98% of history. And you're looking at sort of anomalous examples of that in the 20th century. The reason those examples are anonymous is, for example, if you look at North Korea, North Korea has been in a state of war with the rest of the world for basically its entire existence. And so sort of being one of the ways in which that sort of results in this state of tyranny, which is very difficult for even the Kim family to get out of, is that they know that if they relax a little bit, they're just all of the pressures of the world that has dethroned everyone from like Charles I to Gaddafi, you know, all of the kind of anti-monarchical forces around them are going to rush in and destroy them. And so their hands are tied in some ways. China managed to square the circle in an interesting way where they sort of realized in a way that the Soviet Union couldn't, that like, wait a second, we're actually so stable that we can have capitalism, which involves all of these independent forces and all these sort of little kings and CEOs, and we can still maintain our system of government. And that produced sort of an amazing level of success, which simply can't be denied. That's an interesting distinction in in those two places. And uh, unfortunately, we are out of time here. It's been an absolute pleasure talking with you, Curtis. Thanks Thanks for coming on the show. It's been super fun.